A few weeks ago, I sat down with my friend Patrick Manning, myself in Chambers in Brisbane and he in New South Wales, and we discussed the vexed issue of mandatory reporting at some length. Any practitioners who have concerns about this ought to always speak with their indemnifier, the dental association, or an experienced legal practitioner in this area, as the law is quite complex, largely untested, and an inappropriate interpretation of this can be problematic, as will become evident to those who listen to the entirety of this podcast. Um, Patrick, thanks very much for talking to me this afternoon about this issue of mandatory reporting, because it's something that I feel is important for practitioners to understand the responsibilities, and I guess that um, would I be right in thinking that you know about it, but you have questions? You'd be right in thinking that I've heard of it, but I know almost nothing about it. It's new to me in the practice of my profession. In fact, I'm pretty sure that my early jurisprudence lectures contained an element of don't dob. So to be asked in 2019 to effectively dob is a new, a new era for me. Well, uh, the notifications regime, as you know, was set up in 2010 around the country by ARPA and in your state, New South Wales, by the um, dental councils and other councils, which is a separate issue we won't bore people with today. But ultimately, anyone can make a complaint about anything to do with a health practitioner at any time, and that's a voluntary process. But what troubles people is the understanding of what a mandatory notification is. And um, I guess suppose that because it is a positive obligation under uh, Section 140 of the national law in each state, people need to understand exactly what their obligations are. Are you telling me that it's been on foot for the last eight years and I haven't noticed? Well, almost nine, but yes, Patrick, and you, you would not be alone in that regard. Um, in fact, even when, I've got to be honest, reading through the guidelines and legislation this afternoon when someone asked me a question recently, I uh, discovered something that I did not know at all, which I'm going to tell you now. Not only do health practitioners have mandatory obligations, but so does anyone who employs a health practitioner, which I had not really adverted to because I suppose I'm not particularly troubled by um, what employers have to do unless they're dentists. But of course, we have this world now where there's lots of people who employ health practitioners and they are similarly obliged under the national law to uh, make such um, reports. Well, let's, let's start with TORS. Um, mandatory kind of says to me that I must, there's no, uh, there's no option to not do something. That's right. Under um, Section 140, I think it is, um, mandatory notifications must be made in relation to a registered health practitioner, meaning that the practitioner has to have done one of four things. Um, firstly, is the practitioner has uh, practiced the profession while intoxicated by alcohol or drugs. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Well, no. Um, I mean, is this a single instance? So somebody comes into my practice who I employ and they're a dentist and they seem slightly inebriated from the night before. Is that it? Do I bang off a complaint or a notification? I guess it is straight away. Well, it would seem the legislation seems to contemplate that, that on its plain reading. If you have a reasonable belief, and we'll get into that a bit more later, perhaps if we're unlucky, that a health practitioner 
has practiced their profession and I guess practicing the profession means being at work and being around patients and treating patients and they are intoxicated by alcohol or drugs and I guess intoxicated on its plain meaning meaning affected by then you would have um, an apparent mandatory obligation to notify them well let me throw something else at you because I know you're uh, quite well versed in the intricacies of this I'll call it new approach to practice legislation we're told that if I'm at a Rotary Club giving a public information talk on the nature of dentistry, I'm practising. Uh, I think that's right, isn't it? Well, it can be. That's right. So you're saying that if you were to go to the Rotary Club and give a lecture on, um, uh, you know, for example, new implant treatments available to your patients of the area in which you work, then that could be seen to be practising the profession. That's correct. It's a very broadly reaching uh, bit of legislation, this, isn't it? Well, it's helpful to probably think about the policy behind it. And the policy behind it is that health practitioners know things about health practitioners that other people who are consumers do not. So ultimately, uh, health practitioners may be aware that um, other health practitioners, and it applies to not, not only dentists, so you could be a dentist who is aware that a pharmacist is uh, affected by alcohol and you could make a complaint on that basis. So it doesn't have to be intra-profession. But it, the policy reason is that clearly people do go to work drunk, people do go to work affected by um, drugs and people do have unfortunately inappropriate sexual relationships, which is the next point I was going to get to with their patients. And if people become aware of this, then you are bound to notify the, um, the the board, or at least APRA, so that they can make a decision whether it's an issue or not. Let's stick with um, drugs for a moment, and I'll pretend I'm a bush lawyer. But uh, what I'm looking at right now is the APRA website, where they have a page that's got a couple of headings, but one of them is making a mandatory notification, and it lists those four dot points of the times in which I should do it, but it mm. just uses the word drugs. It doesn't say illicit drugs, illegal drugs. It just says drugs. So how widely does that part of, of that point spread? Well, I think the key word is intoxication by drugs. So intoxicated by alcohol or intoxicated by drugs. So if you took, um, you know, too much uh, Crestor, um, I don't think that's going to be an issue. But if you're taking any sort of drug, illicit, um, prescribed or otherwise, it's in, in, uh, intended to cover all drugs which might intoxicate a person. Fair enough. Well, at least that's plain English. My question was going to be, is this the legislation that I'm looking at or does the legislation that you were quoting have different wording and that this is a sort of a, a summary of the actual black letter laws? No, that, that is the summary of the definition. So when at the end of the um, APRA documents, they generally will generate the actual relevant sections of the legislation, if someone were um, bored enough to go and look for the guidelines on mandatory notifications, there's quite a bit of legislation at the end of the document. Um, but yeah, if we go through those four points, engaged in sexual misconduct with the practice of the practitioner's profession. So presumably, on its plain language, we would imagine that that means having uh, a sexual relationship with a person that's inappropriate in broad terms. I don't know how you make a decision on that, but that's one of the notifiable conduct issues. Well, is it sexual misconduct or is it an inappropriate sexual relationship? Well, of course, sexual misconduct 
isn't defined, uh, at least as far as I can tell. So it really means that it's on its plain, ordinary interpretation. So what's sexual misconduct, I guess, having well, that, a that, sex... Well, that's my question, you see. Yeah, uh, and I don't know. It's not that, very I, helpful. No, but that's often the case. They use very broad... This is not a criminal code, so they're just trying to make a catch-all so that they can say, well, you know, we want people to advert to these issues. And so if there's sexual misconduct and they think that that might impact upon the practitioner's ability to do their work or their judgment, then I guess they're asking you as a health practitioner to think about that and decide whether you need to make a notification. So it's not just the notifiable conduct. You have to actually go through a process in your mind as to whether it's appropriate to notify or not, because as you say, if someone um, goes to work and is intoxicated with a hangover on a single incidence after the presumably uh, some incident, um, that may not be enough for you to believe that that's um, a notifiable conduct. But obviously, if someone was uh, treating patients and having sexual relationships with patients within the practice, then that would probably make someone think that might be notifiable conduct. So it's a matter of degree, but it's problematic, I agree. I guess thinking about this a little more, uh, this is intended to catch people, um, and I think in the old days we called them wrong end uh, offences, uh, people who were uh, treating patients under sedation and taking advantage of that fact. It would involve uh, underage uh, pedophilic type offences. Would it involve... I notice that the board has recently made a bit of a thing about you shouldn't really be treating your relatives, wives, children, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, is that uh, caught by this uh, directive? I would hope and think not, because treating a uh, family member is not engaging in sexual misconduct um, in connection with the practice of the practitioner's profession. So it would be my interpretation that that's something uh, a little bit narrower than that. And, and sexual misconduct would be, um, well, you're right. It's very hard to say what it is within, if you look at the entirety of the clause, sexual misconduct in connection with the practice of the practitioner's profession. So that means it must touch upon or be involved in the practice. So, um, you know, if someone um, is engaged in um, criminal offences, then that will be caught presumably by other provisions of the national law. But um, I think what it's intending to mean is exactly the matters that you talked about, and that is where someone is practising as a dentist and engaging in sexual misconduct within the practice, such as under sedation with children uh, or inappropriate professional relationships. I think they're all intended to be caught by this very broad, as we're finding, um, de definitions of misconduct. And going a little further, um, I don't know what the mores of the country are these days, but somebody uh, conducting an affair with um, either uh, a staff member or uh, does that have the same sort of force or seriousness as with a patient? Let, let's, let's assume there's nothing wrong with the dentistry. They're just having a sexual relationship that's not with whoever their spouse is. Mm. Well, I think if you're asking me, is there a difference between having a sexual relationship with an employed person and having a sexual relationship with a patient? Well, there's a very big difference because this legislation at least is set up to protect the public. It's not particularly 
interested in employees in that particular scope. Um, it's really patients who are being treated by the practitioner. So although both of those activities might be unwise for varying reasons, this is intended to capture the patients, not so much the employees. It Just may how well dumb... be... Sorry. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Just how dumb are these questions that I'm asking, or in fact, are they also troubling other people within your field? I think they trouble people all the time. They're not dumb questions because what happens, of course, is the uh, APRA authority agency publishes these guidelines or rules, and there's very little discussion of them. Um, you know, for example, the penalties involved in this are not specified. If you fail to notify then it only goes to your general fitness and propriety to be a practitioner or whether it's unsatisfactory performance. There's no penalty as such if you fail to notify um, and you are protected if you do notify. But I think these questions are all very good because they're written in such a way, as I can see as a lawyer, what the intention of the legislation is. But it has occasionally, as I'm aware, captured uh, people and activities that one would argue is not appropriate for it to cap. To capture and to put people under the microscope they perhaps shouldn't and the questions you're asking are exactly along those lines. Well let's move on to uh, the third one which is uh, placing the public at risk of substantial harm because of an impairment bracket health issue mm -hmm. and that's alloyed by the connector or placing the public at risk because of a significant departure from accepted professional standards and that really goes to that phenomenon that I was describing of young dentists being told don't uh, say anything about the dentistry that you encounter in a new person patient's mouth uh, because this is going to create problems of all types and natures that you don't want to have. Um, well, let's go through those two first. So the first one is substantial harm because of an impairment and that's clearly intended to be a health impairment which in plain terms is psychiatric or drug affected so if so that kind of touches upon a to a degree which is the notifiable conduct being uh, intoxicated by alcohol or drugs but this one's talking about substantial harm because the person has an impairment so if they've got a psychiatric impairment a psychological impairment a health impairment um, whatever then that's another another category which I think to some degree um, includes the the one about alcohol or drugs but that's a straightforward one however the important words are places the public at risk of substantial harm so if someone has an impairment as many people do of various types um, psychological and others that's fine but it's only if that impairment is going to place the public at risk of substantial harm now I know you're going to ask me Patrick what is substantial harm and that's an excellent mm. question I won't surprise you to know that that's not defined within legislation clearly that's defined within the case law about regulatory matters and so that would be for example if someone was so uh, unable to practice the profession because of their impairment then it means that the um, and this is all health practitioners not just dentists but it might mean that uh, the person was going to do something that would be irreversible irretrievable um, or something that people would think is a serious harm so risk of substantial serious harm that's the that's the idea they're trying to get across and now because these are so rarely prosecuted and to my knowledge and I could be wrong um, I'm not aware of any public prosecution on this basis yet it's very hard to know what these thresholds really mean but yes that's the idea so that's the impairment one 
Now, when you're talking about the, the departure from accepted professional standards, again, you'll note that it's not substantial harm. It's just placed the public at risk of harm. So there's not a substantial adjective there. It's just the practitioner has practiced the profession in a way that constitutes a significant departure. Well, the key word there is significant. And departure well, actually, is it going doesn't. To... Uh, it doesn't say. It says placing the public at risk. Um, yes, it doesn't so say it doesn't... substantial risk, mm. which Ooh. is different to the previous one. So that would be uh, an impairment is going to be a harder threshold to get over because of the substantial adjective, whereas risk of harm because of departure from professional standards is going to be a lower threshold. Um, but again, it's a significant departure from accepted professional standards. So ultimately, that's what that is intended to capture, is someone, for example, who decides that the best way to treat dental decay is to give someone sugar tablets. Now, that would be uh, the, placing the public at risk of harm because they're, they're carrying out dentistry in a way that is a significant departure. Now, it may well be that some people could say that some of the uh, dental treatment or paradental treatment that people offer these days um, places the public at harm and is a significant departure from accepted professional standards and you don't have to think very hard about what some of those things might be. Are the people drafting this legislation, um, a couple of things spring to mind when I'm reading this and that is this use of the word issue, health issue, when what they really mean is problem. Does this seem to you to be part of a modern malaise where people speak in less than clear terms and make life more difficult. Uh, and we already have uh, some legal concepts, I think, like uh, the test in Bolham for what is a significant departure from accepted professional standards. Are they trying to rewrite things that have already been settled for a long time? Well, because it's such new legislation in this country, they are trying to rewrite things, I think. Um, and they're trying to protect the public through these through these measures. However, in a regulatory sense, the, the Bolam test, which, as you know, is uh, about negligence, uh, I think there are aspects of trying to import that test into the, um, into the regulatory framework by using words such as significant departure from professional standards, even though those professional standards are probably going to be provided through the Dental Board of Australia guidelines and they do import the Australian Dental Association uh, conduct and other rules uh, periodically. So they're trying to get a way forward and that's going to be established through health practitioner prosecutions and regulatory um, actions and that's unfortunately how it's going to happen. Brad, do you believe that this is another one of the set of new restrictions, I keep saying that, even though, as you point out, it's not really all that new, imposed on dentistry because of the uh, failure to behave properly in other professions, as some of the advertising regulations are thought to be? Oh, undoubtedly. I think that there's a very broad brush that health practitioners, if you think back to uh, when you and I were young practitioners, Patrick, back in the, you know, let's say 1980s and be generous, that... Mm -hmm. There was a dental board, a dental council, a dental specific legislation for each health profession. Now, that's gone. There is no such thing. It's just health professionals all come under the National Uniform Act. So, yes, there's no doubt that this uh, notifiable conduct is principally written in relation to the usual offenders. Um, and I don't mean that in a defamatory sense, but there's no doubt 
psychologists, um, uh, pharmacists, nurses, those people are tending to be more likely to be prosecuted or to be caught by this conduct than dentists. But ultimately, it's useful for dentists to be reminded that they have responsibilities and we can grizzle all we like about the inapplication of this to, if that's such a word, to uh, the dental profession, but we are caught by it and we have to defend ourselves against these issues. Well, let's talk about uh, a paragraph that's just underneath the dot points that I've found on the website. The threshold for a person or organisation to make a mandatory notification is high. They go on and say what they mean, but why don't you tell me what they mean? Um, I'll have to go and find that. So you're talking about the website now, aren't you? Uh, oh, well, I'll go back. Yeah. yeah, I'll just go back and find that. We can. Uh, so we're talking about making a mandatory notification, or I just want to look at the exact passage you're talking about. Uh, so might... there's the dot points, and then it says what I just said, and then this means they need to have oh, a okay. reasonable. Sure. Yeah, well, that's, I'll just... this is again, and I've got that. That's not actually the legislation, as you know. This is APRA's open inverted commas guideline, closed inverted commas. Um, the threshold to make a mandatory notification is high. Now, this is all in very imprecise language, as you've already identified, Patrick, but it essentially means that the notifying practitioner means they need to have a reasonable belief, which is within the legislation, that a practitioner has behaved in a way that constitutes notifiable conduct. So this is a good point that once you have the notifiable conduct in your mind that you think might be subject to the notification, you then have to go through the next step, which is to... Um, form a reasonable belief that um, they have acted in a way, this is the, the pra subject practitioners, acted in a way that constitutes notifiable conduct and further that that belief is based on reasonable grounds. So clearly this is another way of uh, being a threshold to stop people going, oh, I, I suspect this person's done this and I'm going to act. So you have to have a reasonable belief. Now, is that direct knowledge? Is that it's using that old term reasonable, isn't it? And uh, that's essentially trying to make someone stop and think whether the belief is reasonable. Well, I mean, um, let me start again. Well, Brad, that's a, a good point. And uh, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so what sort of evidence am I going to need before I make a mandatory notification? Am I expected to have a stat deck? Am I expected to have a couple of video files or a, a JPEG or some forensic well, evidence? I think that when you know, when you're going to make one, you're going to know is what I say to anyone that will ask me. But I could perhaps give a couple of examples where it would be appropriate. Um, if, for example, um, you were using dental examples, you go to work every day and you're aware that uh, other people that work in the workplace, whether it's, um, you know, presumably other health practitioners, let's make it simple and make it a dentist, they come to work and they have told you that they are feeling bad because of all the MDM, MDMA that they consumed on the weekend as well as the methamphetamine they smoked last night before they came to work. Now, I would have thought that you could say that is a reasonable belief because you had direct knowledge through their telling you. So that's a very easy one, isn't it? Well, so what you're saying is that APRA are not going to say, oh, that's hearsay. No, they're not because they're not they're not bound by things like rules of evidence. They're just a notification directed authority that says, well, you've notified us that you. Are, so how it would work would be, let's use that example. Let's not say you, Patrick. Let's just say it's dentist A goes to work 
um, dentists B and C both turn up and talk about the rave they went to on the weekend and the amount of drugs they consumed and how awful they feel. Um, how it would happen then is that person may feel it's appropriate to make a notification on a mandatory basis, but I should point out you don't have to make it on a mandatory basis. You can do it on a voluntary basis, and that is uh, equally open to you. The only difference is that you have a mandatory, a positive obligation to do it, um, but you can equally do it voluntarily. But we could perhaps talk about angels on the head of the pin for some time, but let's just say the mechanism of that happens. The person says, right, I believe this person is um, a risk to the public because of this, because of they practice the profession while affected. I'm going to make an mandatory notification. They fill in the form or they make a phone call and ARPA doesn't immediately send out um, an ARPA notification squad. Uh, depending on the, the reasonableness of the complaint and how serious it is, they might ask for a response from the subject practitioner A, dentist A, or they may, in, on rare occasions, if they think it's serious enough, just immediately suspend registration and ask questions later. So if you're going to make a mandatory notification, be aware that if it is serious and it does mean that ARPA do consider that the public are at risk, they can um, completely ignore procedural fairness and just immediately suspend a practitioner without notice and then uh, beyond to giving them notice they're suspended and then ask questions later. So one needs to do this with a degree of uh, circumspection and care because that's what will happen. Now, sometimes ARPA will, of course, look at this and go, well, you know, let's investigate and see if it's a real reason. It's not um, someone who's got a history of problems. This is could be a mistake, so let's take it easy. But, you know, they're probably not going to do that, are they? I, I really don't know. I've managed to steer clear of them so far. But... Uh... I just was wondering, as you were speaking, uh, how confidential uh, a notification is. Let's say I'm in a, a large practice and I take the step to identify the individuals that we were just talking about. There's a certain amount of feedback and blowback that's going to occur. Uh, is my report going to be confidential or is everybody going to see the author of it? Um, well, I've not been involved in many of these matters, but generally at the end of the day, it becomes clear who the notifier is. Um, and they can be protected under various legislation. But if, for example, using the example we've talked about, dentist A, talking about dentist B and C, um, it will be obvious that APRA has received a complaint from a person, but they will not normally be identified. And if one is making a mandatory notification, it's probably appropriate to speak to the case officer investigator and point out that confidentiality is critical. I presume they would act in that way, but there's no positive obligation on them as I understand, to particularly do this in any way. But I think it's ultimately, if you're going to make a mandatory notification and it is prosecuted, which they can be, then clearly identities are going to be um, constructively identified, if not actually identified. So, yeah, it can be a problem, there's no doubt. I noticed that uh, there's a section on mandatory reporting exceptions for health practitioners. Would you like to tell me why Western Australia is different or is that as ever, always difficult. <laughs> I don't mean Western Australia in general, but it's probably got the most progressive uh, legislation in this regard, as you've pointed out, under the national law. Um, there's an exception if the health practitioner forms a reasonable belief about another health practitioner. If that occurs while they're treating them in plain language, then they don't have a positive obligation to mandatory report. However, they can still make a 
a, um, a voluntary one, but it, it takes the positive uh, duty off. Why that's important, and I will answer the question, is that at the moment it's said to be the case that there are practitioners who go to Western Australia for assistance with impairments and drug issues rather than be treated by their practitioners in the eastern states because they won't be mandatory reported. And um, I know this by direct knowledge that people will go to have treatment in Western Australia rather than run the risk of mandatory notification here. So I think that the reason for that Western Australian difference, um, and there is one in Queensland as well, as I'm sure you pointed out, um, is that the Western Australian uh, state government when it was implementing national law decided that through someone's input that there need to be an exception for treatment because obviously if if someone is fearful of getting treatment and they have an impairment of being notified they might continue to treat patients while they're under an impairment and that is actually a worse outcome than the legislation seeks. Well in fact um, APRA don't have a Queensland listed here separately they just have one sentence relating to Western Australia so that's interesting. Well, under the what's happened is in Queensland, there's a separate, and I don't want to bore non-Queenslanders about this, but there is a supervening act called the Health Ombudsman Act in Queensland, and it also has a provision differently, of course, to New South Wales, because we couldn't be the same, that says that um, there's an exception if the practitioner forms a reasonable belief as a result of providing a health service to the second health practitioner. So that's basically mirroring the Western Australian one, but it has a second subsection which provides that um, they then have to make a judgment whether the impairment will not place the public at substantial risk and is not professional misconduct. So it's not as good a provision as the Western Australian one for health practitioners, but it's certainly an indication that there is an attempt to ameliorate the effect of this. And the effect of this can be that practitioners who are impaired and who are suffering um, are not able to seek treatment for those reasons and I, I think that's an unfortunate outcome. I know that there are lots of documents circulating about the amendment of this nationally and uh, but that will be ultimately a matter for each state as to whether they implement it or not because as you know this is a national uniform law but each state varies it and changes it as New South Wales did and Queensland has. Brad do you have any overall concerns about this area? I, I know that we're talking because you feel there's a degree of ignorance. Is there, is there any other main or important points that you wanted to make? I think that there's another exception, and that is if someone has a concern, they can talk to um, a medico-legal advisor, and that doesn't mean a lawyer necessarily, although how you give legal advice without being a lawyer, I've yet to be convinced. But um, indemnity organisations such as Australian Dental Association and their various um, uh, indemnity organisations, without naming them all, there is... Uh, a lack of a notification requirement for those persons if they're doing that in that uh, capability. So if, for example, a dentist was to call up a dentist who was working for one of the indemnity organisers organisations and ask their advice about it, um, then they will not be uh, positively obliged to report them because of that exception. But it only applies if they come to that uh, knowledge through a request along the lines of medico-legal uh, assistance. If, for example, um, a dentist is uh, aware of this who happens to work for one of the indemnity organisations but hears about it through another source, so as indirectly or direct observations, then they still have a mandatory obligation. 
Um, similarly, lawyers such as myself, um, our duty of confidentiality and privilege far exceeds any mandatory obligation. So lawyers are specifically excluded under the Act as well. So the answer to your question in closing, because we better finish because people have fallen asleep by now, Patrick, I assume, but and it has been interesting for me. But what we need to say is if you're unsure, speak to an indemnity advisor or another person before you make the notification because the ramifications of such a notification can be extreme and most uh, indemnity organisations, including lawyers who work in the area such as myself, are more than happy to talk to people and give them an indication as to whether they should or shouldn't notify uh, and give them some perspective before they rush ahead. Another free service from most membership organisations around the country. Well, that's been illuminating. It's uh, certainly cleared up a few long-standing questions that I had appreciate the time. Thanks.